Welcome to Zoe Community Church, everyone. Happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is James, in case you don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors here. And what a blessing it is to gather twice in one weekend, first on Good Friday, to solemnly remember and commemorate uh, the death of crucifixion of Christ, our Lord, on our behalf. And then now today, to celebrate his miraculous resurrection. Now, if you're new new to Zoe or new to church in general, maybe you're just visiting for the holidays, we're especially glad you're here. All right, we don't usually dress up so much, but today is special. At Zoe, we actually try to keep things pretty simple. We try to, to keep to preaching God's word, holding God's word, holding it up as the highest, most important thing. We want to keep his word, the Bible, central to everything we do. And so we strive to preach it faithfully week in and week out, to meditate on it in our singing, to let it guide our prayers and fuel our fellowship. We believe God's word is how he lets us know who he is, how he's told us and revealed the story of his redemption in Jesus Christ. And so we need to learn it and know it, apply it and do it in order to experience the true life that Christ has for us and has saved us too. That's really it at Zoe, if you want to know about us in a nutshell. And so in our preaching, what we normally do is take one book of the Bible at a time and just preach through it verse by verse as long as it takes to finish the book. So maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe two and a half years, like our last series. But that's what we typically do. And we're on the verge of starting a new series next Sunday. So we'll start our next Bible book. I don't think many people in the room even know what it is. We've been keeping it pretty close to the chest. So stay tuned. Come back next week. But as a special Resurrection Sunday today, we will just be talking about the resurrection. All right? So we'll be talking about the resurrection of Christ. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump right in. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we've just sung, how incredible and amazing, unfathomable it is that Christ died for our sins, yes, and that is so important for our redemption, for the price to be paid. But how incredible that he would rise from the dead, that he would be the firstborn from the dead, that he would be resurrected in power by your spirit, and that in him we can have eternal everlasting hope of eternal life. And so we pray that today as we celebrate Easter together, as we celebrate your resurrection on this Sunday, that we would learn and know and see from your word how that applies to our lives, that we are resurrected with Christ. We pray that you would help us together to experience the blessing of that resurrection life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible or your phone, I encourage you to open it up. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is toward the end of the Bible. If you're in the New Testament, you might see Romans, Corinthians. Just go four small books beyond that. You'll be in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Have you ever made a big move that changed your life? Or that changed everything about you? So maybe later on in life, you started a new job or moved to a second career, and it was a chance to redefine yourself professionally and personally. Or for many of you, maybe getting married changed everything, willingly or not. Or maybe having a baby, or maybe just a literal physical move, right, was the big one for you. You uprooted everything, You left everything you knew and loved to settle in a new place and start over. What was the big move that changed everything? My wife Stephanie and I were born and raised in Southern California, but moving from there to Texas was actually not our most challenging move. To me, the hardest move was from our hometown in Orange County to our first apartment in Los Angeles County, just 45 minutes north. But it was more jarring to me to make that transition than coming out here. I think I've told many of you this, but first of all, Orange County, where we grew up, is a lot like Collin County, right here where Allen is. Politically, demographically, suburbanly. That's why Texas felt like moving home when we came out here from L.A. But L.A. is not like that. I'm not going to have to describe it for you. Just imagine your, your major city on the coast. But on top of that, when we moved to L.A., when we were on our own with no community, it was just the two of us starting over. And everything in our lives changed at once over the course of that 10 months. Steph had just graduated from college. I started a new job in Beverly Hills. We were newly married. We left our old churches. It was a major change and transition for us. Moving changes everything. Being uprooted has a huge lasting effect on anyone. And we'll be talking about that today, that moving changes everything. 
Now, if you're in Colossians with me, the book of Colossians is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was actually doing pretty well spiritually. They were walking well in their faith, but Paul was writing to warn them because they were facing some false teachings that threatened to infiltrate the church, these false beliefs that were creeping in from society around them. And so Paul's appeal to them to cling to what is true all hinges on today's passage. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, right smack in the middle of the letter. Paul tells the Colossian church how and why to counter these heresies. So let's read from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are, that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the word of God. To Paul, it's pretty simple. We are to live differently in light of the resurrection. If we belong to the risen Christ, our focus also will shift from the earth into heaven. Now, our goal this afternoon is to see Christ's resurrection in a specific way. Okay, probably not the first thing you think of when you think of resurrection. We're not going to look at it specifically as a movement from death into life, which it literally is. But to understand that at a spiritual level, resurrection is a call out of this world and into another. Resurrection has uprooted us from one place and settled us down elsewhere. Put another way, resurrection is not merely reanimation of the dead, but a removal from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. From below to above, out of earth into heaven. And a result, the result of this transfer is a wholesale life-altering replacement of our desires, reorientation of our focus, and relocation of our hope. And so we're going to break down our outline today into only two parts. So I told you it was a special Sunday. The points are a little longer, okay, but there are only two parts. First, we'll look back at our reality. What really happened at the resurrection? And I'll warn you, the first part is a little more in-depth, a little more theological, but I know you all can handle it. And then we'll move to our response. What are we supposed to do in light of that truth? What are we supposed to do in light of that reality? How do we live Because resurrection changed everything. And so first, the reality. The reality, which is that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. If you look back at verse 1, this passage begins, If then you have been raised with Christ. Now realize we're dropping right into the middle of an argument that Paul is making. When he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, he's building on this assertion he's already made previously that we have been raised with Christ. But even that is built on another foundation that we have to look at, this huge underlying assumption, which is that Christ has been raised at all. Christ has been raised. So the simple facts we need to begin with here to lay the foundation. Listen to how Paul summarizes the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is Paul's gospel, and the word gospel simply means good news. And this is absolutely the good news. He boils it down to three things. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. He's talking about Jesus Jesus, who the Bible says is the Son of God, fully God, in the beginning with God. Things were created through him and for him and to him. And this Jesus, in the middle of human history, stepped down, took on human form, came from heaven, born as a baby, entered into the earth in the flesh to take on the ultimate end of our human problem, mortality. Mortality. And Jesus died. Jesus died. Immortal God took on flesh and died as man would die. How crazy is that? I remember having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness once, and she said to me, do you guys actually believe that God died? What kind of God would die? But yes, Paul's gospel says Jesus died. That's the first thing. Died for our sins. You see, the human problem isn't mortality. The human problem is depravity. 
wickedness, unrighteousness, the things that earned us mortality. Starting with Adam and Eve onward, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so we deserve death. Sin is any, anything we say, think, or do against God and his authority. Rebelling against him, breaking his righteous decrees, and the penalty for sin, for rebellion against God, is death. We all deserve death, but Jesus died for our sins. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, tempted as we are, but never sinning once, and that unique life of perfection, the only one ever that did not deserve death, went to the cross, was crucified there. Jesus took our place. He traded his death for ours. He satisfied the punishment of God so that we could get his reward. So Christ died for our sins. And then 1 Corinthians says, and he was buried. They laid his body in a tomb. We sung about that this afternoon. They buried him as you would any other dead man. And that was the end of that. Or it would have been the end, right? For any other man, something was different here. On the third day, and this is the third part, Jesus rose from the dead. He died, was buried, and he rose again on the third day, just as the scriptures said. That's what we celebrate today, that Jesus did not stay dead. His tomb was miraculously empty. And then he appeared in his resurrected body to the disciples and to hundreds more, and he ate with them and spoke with them and taught them. And then he ascended into heaven. The whole New Testament is written for us by those who were personal eyewitnesses of this life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even Paul himself, to whom Jesus personally appeared after his ascension and spoke to him from heaven. All of scripture contains the prophecy of and then a testament to the reality of the resurrected Christ. And so the resurrection, you'll agree, is super important for Christians. Everything about Jesus, his life, his teachings, and his work on this earth hangs on the resurrection and the truth of it. Paul even continues in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just another man who died. He wouldn't be worth believing in. He would be exactly what the world views him as, just a good teacher, a moral person, but not God. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be meaningless. And yet... We Christians sometimes leave out the resurrection from our gospel sharing, from our uh, preaching the gospel to others, right? I'm definitely guilty of doing this in the past. We elders are finishing the, uh, the final round of membership interviews right now. And if you did your membership interview in the past, you remember one thing that we ask you is to share the gospel with us as a way that we can kind of confirm and, and see your understanding of salvation. And it's actually not uncommon for people to forget to mention the resurrection. Now, why is that? I mean, we'll talk about God's holiness, man's sin, man's need for a savior, Christ dying on the cross for our sin, and then we stop there. Because the cross is the center, right? The cross is the one big thing, and yes, it is absolutely huge. The cross is prominent on every church building, on our walls at home, and around our necks. Without the cross, there is no redemption, no forgiveness, no sacrifice, no substitute, no atonement for sins. That much is clear. Good Friday is absolutely necessary. But Good Friday isn't good news if we leave out the best part. The good news is not only that Jesus died. The good news is that he died and rose again. God's power raised Jesus back to life in order to, in order to fulfill prophecy and to prove to all that Jesus was truly who he said he was, God the Savior. His resurrection proves that the Father accepts his death sufficiently in our place. His resurrection proves his power over sin and death and the grave. His resurrection proves his promise to us of eternal life that awaits. And his resurrection proves to us that our resurrection is also real and true. So on the heels of Good Friday, we celebrate together 
the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it is just as important, if not more so, as one commentator puts it, a message of the cross without the resurrection would not be gospel. And a call to embrace the implications of the cross without a call also to embrace the implications of the resurrection would be poor teaching. So today we talk about the implications of the resurrection. You see, the good news doesn't end there either. Now, what do you mean, James? That sounds, you know, not really kosher. There is better news than the resurrection? In a sense, yes. I would say the greatest news is that Christ's resurrection applies to us. You see, the resurrection is not good news if it doesn't apply to you. If the resurrection is not your resurrection, you will be condemned rightfully and righteously by God the judge forever. The resurrection of Christ is only good news if it applies to us. And praise God that these realities can be ours in Christ Jesus. That the Christian, if we find ourselves identifying with Christ in three ways, we also died with him, we buried, were buried with him, and we were raised with him. You ask, what, what do you mean? What do you mean, James? We aren't dead yet. I know we will die eventually, and then we will rise again in the future resurrection if we believe, right? Yes, physically and chronologically, yes. But look at verse 3. For you have died, Colossians 3.3. 3. For you died. It's pretty explicit and clear, isn't it? But as I said from the beginning, we're dropping into the middle of Paul's argument, right? So let's rewind to chapter 2, verse 20. We scroll up. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Wait, what's he talking about here? This is kind of as clear as mud. So we go even further back to Colossians 2.11, where we read, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is our death. Let me explain. Circumcision as a physical act was a sign given by God to mark his chosen people by a removal of their flesh. But the circumcision here in Colossians 2.11 is one made without hands. It's spiritual. So for the Christian, there has been a spiritual removal of flesh. That is the putting off of the body of flesh. In other words, and in other scriptures, God has circumcised our spiritual hearts, our inner man. That is how we have died. We've died to our old selves. We've died to our old flesh. And part of salvation is this death to the flesh. And continuing from where we are in chapter 2 now, in verse 12, having, buried, having been buried with him in baptism. So after we died to ourselves, we were buried with him, with Christ. And this is symbolized in the sacramental sign of baptism in which our bodies are immersed into the water to publicly identify ourselves with Christ's death and burial. And then verse 12 continues, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And there it is. We were also raised with him. And yes, Paul is talking about baptism here. It's a symbol. And it's a symbol because it represents a spiritual reality. That when we are physically in the water, we declare what is spiritually true of us, that we are buried and dead to our old ways. We are buried with Christ. And then when we come out of the water, we are raised with Christ. And that is, this verse says, through faith in the powerful working of God. Baptism demonstrates our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The act of baptism ex exhibits our faith that as God powerfully raised Christ from the dead, so also God powerfully raises us from the dead. And we identify that with that now already. By faith, we are already participating in Christ's resurrected life. And so go back to our passage, chapter 3, verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. Paul speaks plainly that this, he believes to be a spiritual reality now for us. You see, even though our physical resurrection is not yet because we haven't physically died yet, the Bible clearly teaches here and also in Romans 6, if you want to look at it later, that if we identify with Christ in baptism in his death, then we also have been raised in the resurrection of Jesus. The passage in Romans says, 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The point is already we must know that we live now in Christ. Because of his resurrection, we already walk in the newness of life. That we still exist in these mortal bodies. If anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. So all this forms the backdrop of Colossians 3. So if you're back there, Colossians 3 starts with our resurrection with Christ and then moves forward from there. This text is about how our identity with Christ in his death and resurrection changes everything. As I said earlier, Christ's resurrection gives us a new reality, and it is this. His resurrection has moved us out of the earthly realm, right, and placed us into the heavenly realm. I'll say it again because that's our main point. His resurrection has moved us out of the earthly realm and placed us into the heavenly realm. And we'll see this idea again and again. We're not just brought back to life, but we've made a big move. We've ascended with him. Our new reality is that we are spiritually with Christ in the heavenlies. And we don't talk about that much, and it does sound kind of weird. But where do we get that? Look at the rest of verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ? Aren't we still living here on earth? But we sing these words all the time, don't we? In the song, In Christ Alone. We sing, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. What are we singing? We sing that song a lot. Have you ever thought about that line, my life is hid with Christ on high? What in the world are we singing about? Well, I think the answer is, what out of this world are we singing about? Ephesians 2.5 says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, this is the displacement. When you died with Christ and were raised, your life was moved into heaven. Resurrection has relocated our very lives into a new realm. There is a clear spiritual sense in which our lives are now fully bound up with the Lord, with an ascended Christ in heaven, that though we continue to live on earth now, we live our lives as to the Lord. Our union with him is the reality in which we currently exist. We are wonderfully, eternally, inexplicably, spiritually bound up with Jesus. Let's look at a few facets of this to maybe try to unpack it a little bit. First, we're bound up in solidarity with Christ, right? The Bible says that we are in Christ and also that Christ is in us. And because this is the case, we experience him and even become like him. Our hearts are ruled by Christ's peace. The word of Christ dwells in us richly. We forgive the way he has forgiven. In fact, everything we do or say is done now in the name of Christ. Why? Because we are in him and he is in us. And all of these concepts I just quoted is exactly Colossians 3, 12 to 17. This is Paul's support for his argument later on. We are bound up in solidarity with Christ. Another facet is security. Security, if we're hidden with Christ, no one can snatch us out of his hand. The old dominion of the earth can't have us back. We're protected. We are safe in his arms, preserved by him alone. Christ holds us forever. And so, Christian, take comfort. Your life is now indestructible as Christ is indestructible. Your salvation is secure as God's love is steadfast. And nothing in heaven or on earth can separate you from his love What a promise. And then, of course, there's an aspect of secrecy. And this is highlighted in Colossians 3, when verse 4 will talk about our hidden lives ultimately being revealed with Christ. But for now, what we are is secret, shrouded and concealed in Christ, yet to be fully known. But one day, one day when the glory of Christ appears and all will see and behold him, then everything will come to light, including our lives. We will appear with him in glory. All this is the new reality of the resurrection. Resurrection has moved us out of one realm and into another, out from the earth and into the loving arms of Christ, our Savior, to be kept forever, hid with Christ on high. This move is the paradigm shift. This is our new 
reality. And so now we need to turn and look at the implications that it has on our lives. This remarkable relocation we've experienced also must redirect our perspective and affect all of our actions. And this is our second point, our second point, the response. We saw the reality, now we turn to the response. Look again at the first two verses of chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, and we have been, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Simply put, our new reality means that we must become all about what is above. We must seek the things above. We must set our minds on things above. There's a saying that the rest of our message today will kind of revolve around. It's one that's used so often I couldn't find the source. But it goes, feet on earth, mind in heaven. Feet on earth, mind in heaven. Pastor John MacArthur uses a variant of it when he says, your inside lives in heaven, but your outside lives here. So we start by seeking the things that are above, verse 1. My wife and I are Chinese, and if you know where we grew up, I mentioned earlier we grew up in SoCal, you know that there are pockets of Chinese communities, not just Chinatown, but entire cities where people don't ever have to learn English. And we didn't grow up in one of those cities, okay? But we went there a lot with our families to eat because that's where the legit good Chinese food was. Well, fast forward 30 years when Steph and I moved here, we hoped still to find some good Chinese food. I mean, there are Chinese enclaves out here too, like in Richardson, right? It's not the same. And one mistake we made for a little too long was an ongoing search for dim sum. And it took us years and multiple restaurants to admit that no matter how much we sought L.A. caliber dim sum, it was not to be found. We'd gotten it all wrong. You see, if we'd only set our sights on Tex-Mex and barbecue, we'd have been over the moon. My point is, you can't move somewhere new and still seek the old stuff. Expect it there. You can't move to Dallas with your mindset on dim sum. That would be a mistake. That'd be foolishness. But we want to be Christian and bring some of the old stuff with us sometimes, don't we? We want to hold on to some of our old ways, or perhaps some of those old ways are still trying to get their claws into us. I think we can all attest that experientially, heaven and earth are at constant battle for our minds. You know, for ages, pop culture has used that common depiction of the angel on one shoulder and the demon or devil on the other. In nearly every realm of thought, the world threatens to pull us back into its clutches, to relapse, for us to relapse into the way that we once were, the way that is so natural to our sinful and deceitful hearts. Now, the Colossian church was under this kind of threat, the threat of being pulled away from their faithfulness by the ways of the world. I mentioned the false teachings earlier. We can only infer the details of the false teaching, but it seems, according to the content of the rest of the letter, that what was threatening to infiltrate the church was a belief that there was some spiritual good to be gained by relying on human tradition and ritualistic, even mystical practices. That true religion and spirituality were marked by human performance, doing the right things, observing the right practices and holidays in the right way, and avoiding and abstaining from other things, being strict and severe to your body and submitting to man-made rules. Paul writes Colossians to say, that's not true. The lie of human philosophy and earthly thinking is to distort fleshly passions and regard them as godly wisdom. Paul says, when you emphasize human actions and appeal to the human mind, that's just human religion. And at the end of the day, what really matters is not man, not us, but Jesus Christ. His way, his works, his rule, and his rules. Now you might be thinking, Well, James, it's a good thing then that there's no Jewish mystics here that I know of, right? No one's telling me to celebrate the new moon or to worship angels or any of the pseudo-spiritualism that I see back in Colossians 2, so we're good, right? That's true, but it isn't all that Paul argues against. For the rest of chapter 3, in fact, Paul is going to condemn otherworldly, fleshly practices, ones that you and I know all too well. In verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. 
In verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, all the speech-related sins that we just talked about two weeks ago on Sunday. You see, we are actually guilty of so many worthless, fleshly, earthly practices today. John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress is a famous and very thinly-veiled allegorical tale of the Christian life. In it, a man named Christian leaves his hometown, the city of destruction, to journey along the king's path in search of the celestial city. That's the story. It's the story of his journey to the celestial city. Now, one of the most famous places, I think, in popular culture that comes from this book that he encounters along the way is called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. The fair is a permanent fixture in the city named Vanity. And this fair is a landmark attraction that provides all the pleasures of life. It's a place to revel in and indulge in every sin. All sorts of merchandise are hawked and offered at Vanity Fair. The wares of every nation, lands, titles, and kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights, riches, relationships, and romance. The purpose of this fair is to divert heaven-bound pilgrims from their path by tempting them with everything the world has to offer. The evil Lord Beelzebub's goal in creating such a place was to pull faithful travelers out from their heavenly mindedness and back into their earthly mindedness. And all pilgrims must pass through this lustful fair on the road to the celestial city. Brothers and sisters, I said it's a thinly veiled allegory. You all know we live in Vanity Fair. No one has to tell us to set our minds on the earth. We don't need a devil on our shoulder. Our minds are naturally consumed with earthly things from the moment we wake up. We use our time the ways the world uses its time, right? On social media, in entertainment, for hours on end. When we're productive, we work for the same reasons the world works, to make money, to find stability, to climb the ladder, to reach the American dream. We play like the world plays. We consume like the world consumes. We want the same houses, the same cars, the same vacations, the same lifestyles. The world is full of influencers, and we fall in line with the influence, whether we know it or not. But the resurrection reality is supposed to inoculate us from these influences. The antidote to all of this is to follow the Lord Christ as our head. We're supposed to live in this new way that Christ has purchased for us and be heavenly minded. But in reality and practice, we are so nearsighted that we look no further than our next door neighbor and try to keep up with the Joneses. This is the pull of the world. I get it. I do the same. I too go on social media in the morning. I check my portfolio performance a little too frequently. YouTube may be the most frequently used app on my phone. The battle is real. Don't get me wrong, though. I'm not saying that abstinence is the only righteous way. This is not about, because we're in Colossians, imposing strict rules and severity to the body to mark good religion or also be no better than the false teachers. Sure, we ought to moderate our usage of some of this stuff, maybe even cut out some things, but the solution, the solution is heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness. And then it is permissible to do all these things. But when we focus on what is above, we find ways to take these earthly things and even use them for good, to redeem their use. For example, I can think of a few of you in the room right now who almost exclusively use Facebook to boast Bible verses or books that you've been reading or to share scholarly articles and videos about Christianity. I commend you guys. You see, when our minds are dominated by the thoughts of our life in heaven, everything we do on earth will be heavenward. Everything we say and share and pose and like. Feed on earth, minds in heaven. And that's the point. Everything changes because the resurrection makes us to look above, to seek what is above, to set our minds on things above. So what are these things above that will change everything if we look to them? There's a lot. I'm just going to mention a few. First and foremost, Christ himself is above. In fact, verse 1 tells us that explicitly. He's above. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's where Christ is, ruling and reigning with all dominion and all authority given to him because he is the resurrected Savior. And so we seek his reign and his rule and his kingdom. Jesus says as much in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In the same sermon, he directs us to pray precisely that. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, of course, there's heaven itself up there. When we seek what is above, we look forward to God's heavenly dwelling and eternal presence with him, eagerly awaiting that day when we'll be with him forever. The forefathers of Israel knew this. Hebrews 11 talks about the great faiths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who all looked forward to a promised land, but not the promised land of the nation of Israel. It says they looked forward to a better country, a heavenly one, a city whose architect and builder is God. And Hebrews says these all died in the faith. They hadn't received it. They had acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, the homeland that they sought was awaited, and they sought and awaited was not an earthly one, but their eternal home in heaven. And so set your mind on heaven, just as Abraham, the father of our faith, did. What else is above? Ephesians 1 tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Heavenly blessings are ours already through Christ. These include abundant grace, complete forgiveness, eternal peace, perfect worship, true unity, a lasting inheritance, Sabbath rest, and infinitely more. All these present and future heavenly blessings are and will be ours. Dwell on these things. Seek what is above. Look to them. Earnestly desire them. Teach them to your children. They will rightly set the direction and course of your lives if you just look up. Set your mind on the things above. Make it your focus and meditation. Pay diligent attention and let this new heavenly perspective consume you and alter all of your thinking and your doing. In the story of the little mermaid, the main character, Ariel, is a mermaid who lives in the ocean, but unlike the other mermaids, she has a deep-seated desire to go and be a part of the human world on land, to go be where the people are. She is dissatisfied with her life underwater simply because she's fascinated with the world above. She's collected all sorts of human artifacts over time that come from shipwrecks and stuff, things she's discovered in the sea, and she's collected them in a little treasury, a secret cavern, a secret grotto where she goes to dream and sing about what life might be like on land and to express her desire to go and be there. And having glimpsed the world above, she cannot forget what she has seen, and she longs to go, and with what has grown into a consuming passion, this really drives the rest of, of the movie or the Hans Christian Andersen story, like the little mermaid, we too have received a glimpse of the world above, of Christ's coming. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. When Jesus came, he revealed the heavenly kingdom to us, and he paved the way for us to be with him forever. His resurrection has already connected us to the heavenly realm so that by looking, we might see and know what treasures await us above and what treasures are ours already and be fascinated by what he has won for us and therefore be propelled in our pursuit of these glorious things. So I ask, if you've been raised with Christ, is your mindset on the things above? Or is your mindset on things on, on the earth? Brothers and sisters, our sights must be set on the realities of heaven, where Christ is. So the question is, have you taken this relocation to heart? Have you taken this move to heart? Has it had an effect on you? How are your relationships? Your relationships with others should be transformed by your resurrection with Christ because you would relate to others in the new kingdom way. The way of the world is to be domineering and cruel to those under you, and insubordinate and subversive those over you. Perhaps we find joy in bad-mouthing our bosses or selfishly talking back to our parents. Are we worldly in the way we treat our children? Husbands, are you harsh with your wife? Wives, are you defiant toward your husband? Our reoriented gaze will transform all these things. The resurrected life brings us into a place where good relationships are possible. Because by the power of heaven, forgiveness and reconciliation can happen. If your brother has something against you, you can go and be reconciled to him. The bond of peace is possible in Christ. The command to love is undeniable in Christ. What about at work? The kingdom-minded worker does his work, does his work heartily as working for the Lord and not for man. 
God empowers us to do all our work sincerely and honestly with excellence because our ultimate boss is not your human manager, but Christ himself who is your Lord. And so as resurrected people, we can work differently in a better God-honoring way because that is the reality of a resurrected life. How's your prayer life? What a blessing it is as Christians to be able to draw near to God's throne and receive his grace. What a privilege to carry every anxiety, every fear, every stress to God. We pray because our Savior is alive, ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of God, and he loves us and he hears us and he knows what we will pray. He wants to answer. And how detrimental is it when we squander the opportunity and responsibility we have to appeal to divine authority in every circumstance. A resurrection focus transforms our prayer lives. How are you with temptations? In your resurrected life, you have the ability to stand up under temptation. You have the spirit of God and the power of his spirit enabling you to walk rightly and to overcome the flesh. You can even resist Satan himself who will flee from you because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. If we belong to Christ and our lives are in heaven, then why on earth do we need to be popular in the earth? Or part of the latest trend on social media? Why does our speech sound like the world's speech? Why do we pursue wealth and comfort through money, which is all passing away? Why do we seek out conspiracy theories when we can know divine truth? These things, Paul says, are of no eternal value. They only serve to encumber you and possibly disqualify you. Brothers and sisters, let's leave it behind and cling to Christ. And what about as the church? As a body of believers, we must not be earthbound. The world has its worries, right? Political conflicts, social systems, economic collapse, environmental catastrophe, cultural decay, moral decline. Yes, this is all around us. As a church, we might be so tempted to focus on what the world focuses on. We might try to measure ourselves with the same metrics of success or numbers or performance or money. Let's not become like the world. Our music doesn't need to sound like the world. Our music should sound like heaven. And if you read any accounts of scripture of of the music in heaven, that's what we want. We don't need to sound like a a concert. We want to sound like the the unity of, of saints singing together and raising our voices. The church doesn't need to be a corporation. The fellowship doesn't need to be a social club. The building doesn't need to be a civic center. And we'll try to keep these things in mind in wherever the Lord leads us as a church in the future. My question is, would Jesus recognize his church if he came? Because the warning to us, and I don't think we're quite there, so this isn't kind of judging all of us for what we're doing or not doing, but the warning is Jesus purged the temple because it was being pervaded by worldliness rather than worship. Will he recognize his church when he comes? The body of Christ must not be earthbound because we are Christ-bound. We are Christ-bound. We have been resurrected with Christ. We are hidden with Christ. We later will appear with Christ in glory. That's the gospel reality. We are the bride of Christ. We must follow our head. And the church must live heavenly lives here. Lives marked by love. Lives passionate for corporate worship and fellowship. Lives devoted to scripture, committed to prayer, and preaching the gospel to those still ruled by the world. So we church, our thoughts of heaven and our gaze toward heaven can drive us toward greater spiritual effectiveness in Collin County today. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. All left their mark on earth, he says, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Do you want to make a difference in the world? Live a life that matters? The secret to effective living is to stop thinking about living here and start thinking about living there. Feet on earth, mind in heaven. If there's no resurrection, our life has no meaning. Without resurrection, our lives have no purpose. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. In fact, Paul puts it best again in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, 
Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But praise God, we are raised. And that fact allows us to truly live. We can live with a living hope in the resurrected Christ. We can live with an undying love for all the saints. We can live with a passion to preach the gospel. We can press on toward glory as we await our Savior's return. So to summarize, Christ's resurrection has relocated us to a new domain. He's moved us from one place to another and changed everything about us. A radical shift of our values, desires, and mindset. Feet on earth, minds in heaven. The resurrection changes everything. Now, perhaps you aren't a Christian and you're hearing this today for the first time where it's new to you or maybe you've been here a while, but now it's just becoming clear to you. We offer to you this afternoon the hope of eternity and a call to true life, to truly live. If you've been stuck in a rut, if you feel utterly trapped in your vices, if you feel like life has beaten you down and there's no hope at all in this world for you, the Bible says you're actually right. If you're thinking there must be more to life or more than just this life, again, you're right. If you're at the end of yourself and looking for hope, I urge you to turn to the solution, the only way that is Jesus Christ. God has brought you here today to hear this, that Jesus Christ died and was buried and on the third day was raised again. I urge you to believe that his death is for you. As a sinner, there's nothing you can do or make or prove or earn to be right with God. God did it all for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and pay for your sins, the price and penalty that we could not pay. He took it on the cross. Believe in his death. And I urge you to believe in his resurrection, which we celebrate today, that on the third day, his tomb was empty. He rose back to life, ascended to rule and reign, and ultimately, he'll return to judge the world. Today, he offers to you eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead. You will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That is why the resurrection is important. Believe in the resurrection of Christ. Receive it by faith and you will have new life in Christ. You confess your sins, turn from them in repentance. And come to Jesus for forgiveness. And then you receive the life he has promised us and granted us by being raised by the power of God from the dead. The Christian life won't be an easy life. I'm not going to try to to sell you on this in that way. It won't be without suffering and battle. It won't mean immediate healing or riches. But it is a life of obedience and sacrifice to the Lord. And it is worthwhile. Following Christ Following God is a life of true joy and blessedness, perhaps not in the world's eyes. But if you're saved, it's not about the world's eyes, is it? The reward of heaven is real and awaits us. And there's nothing better. So if you tried all the things of this world for satisfaction and fulfillment, and you know they've all let you down, here's another quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And my friend, faith in Christ's resurrection will place you in that world. If you're a Christian here, let me encourage you with an excerpt from the Pilgrim's Progress, and then we'll close. Just before entering Vanity Fair, Christian encountered his friend Evangelist, who was encouraging him along the way. He pops in and out of the story. And in this instance, right before he enters the fair, the city of vanity, evangelist says to him, let the kingdom be always before you and believe steadfastly concerning things that are invisible. Let nothing that is on this side of the other world get within you. And above all, look well to your own heart and to the lusts thereof, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Set your faces like a flint. You have all power in heaven and earth on your side. And so Christian, as he passed through Vanity Fair, refused to look upon any of the goods being sold. And to drown out the clamor of the merchants, he put his hands over his ears and he cried out, turn my eyes away from gazing upon all this vanity. For, John Bunyan writes, all of his trade and all of his traffic was in heaven. 
All of his trade and traffic were in heaven. Feet on earth, mind in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we are solely to be about the business of heaven. We buy only the truth. We peddle only the gospel of Christ because we are not made for this world, but for the next. This around us is only vanity fair. We are just passing through. And in the story, the prince of princes, when he paved that way to the celestial city, also passed through vanity fair. But he passed through unscathed and unstained. The only things worth seeking, the only things worth thinking about are the things above and the one who is above, the perfect, holy, righteous one. And to seek and desire the things that are coming, that is his return, his glorious return when we will be with him forever. We must taste and see that the Lord is good. His words are sweet. His banquet is fulfilling. Christ alone is better than all the luxuries of this fallen world because he is risen. He is risen indeed, and we have been raised with him. We bow with me in prayer. Lord, what glorious news, the great news of the gospel, that Christ came, lived, died, buried, and rose again, and we too with him, if we believe. What hope there is for us that we are not left to our own devices to strive and and struggle and try to grope our way into heaven. But when we were blind, when we were dead, when we were lost and hopeless, at the right time, you sent your son to be savior of the world. So help us, Lord, to listen to 1 John 2 when it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lord, help us. We need your help. We still struggle with sin and temptation. Lord, help us to stand firm in our identity that we are yours. Our lives are hidden with Christ. We thank you that you continue to bear with us in your patience, that you forgive when we do wrong, when we sin against you, because we are secure in Christ Jesus, that therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for holding us for securing us, for keeping us in you. And we pray for those who are listening today that have not responded to the gospel or have not understood it. We pray for a clarity in their understanding. We pray for your spirit to draw their heart, to change them and transform them, to desire what is heavenly and to repent before you of their sins. We pray that your transformation would happen in lives this very day. We thank you most of all, Lord that we celebrate Resurrection Sunday today, we remember that salvation is accomplished by your will, your work, your power, for Christ to die on our behalf and for you to raise him from the dead. What a wondrous miracle and mystery. Lord, change how we live in light of these things. We ask and we plead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.